I have a sermon here. This morning's message is on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a series of blessings that are probably the most famous and the most loved sermon Jesus ever preached. They form the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the first and the greatest sermon preached by Jesus. The word beatitude is derived from the Latin referring to a state of happiness or bliss. Jesus brings forth the possibility of people being genuinely happy, and so he lists this series of eight blessings. The word blessed in the Greek is makarios, which means happy, fortunate, or blissful. The word blessed is often used of God himself. In Psalm 68, verse 35, David declares at the end of the psalm, Blessed be God. In Psalm 72, verse 18, Solomon sang, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. In 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 11, Paul speaks of the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Blessedness is a characteristic of God, and it can be a characteristic of men only as they share in the nature of God. In the world, we sometimes see people proclaiming how blessed they are with their many material things. But there is no blessedness, no perfect contentedness and joy of the kind of which Jesus is talking about here, except that which comes from a personal relationship with him. And Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 finishes that sentence, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. So as we see, being blessed with blessings we will learn about today is actually part of sharing in God's nature. Now before we get to the Beatitudes, I think it's important to recall the events of Jesus' ministry that lead up to this point so we can keep everything in context. In chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 13 uh, says, Jesus was leaving Nazareth, his hometown. He wasn't there very long, so why did he leave? Well, there are two reasons that we know of. Uh, Let's turn to Luke chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 16 through 21. if you would. Verses 16 through 21. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, 
This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. He was raised there. And it, and it's, it says here it was his custom to enter the synagogue on the Sabbath and uh, read scripture. At this time, on, on this day, it, it must have been his appointed time to do that. And the scripture he chose to read was the prophecy of Isaiah, which was a prophecy about the Messiah. And it probably had been read a hundred times or more over the years, but nobody ever sat down and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was proclaiming to be the Messiah right there. So the people couldn't accept that. He, they knew Jesus. They knew he was he was raised there. They knew his family. They knew his uh, they knew he was a carpenter. Uh, they just they didn't expect the Messiah to come from their hometown, so they rejected Jesus, and uh, they ended up leading him out to the cliff and tried to throw him off the cliff, but he slipped through the crowd and got away. So that's one of the reasons why he left Nazareth. Uh, and he went to Capernaum. The other reason is that he was fulfilling another of Isaiah's prophecies recorded in Matthew 4, verses 14 through 16. So let's go there. Matthew 4, 14 through 16, and we'll stay there too because the scripture, the text we're reading this morning about the Beatitudes is only a page away from that. Matthew four fourteen through 16. And he came, he left Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy by moving to Capernaum. Uh, he, he was all about fulfilling prophecies. So that's the second reason why he, he left. Then in verse 17 of that same chapter, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's saying here is, He is the king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. Jesus has arrived and He's brought His kingdom with Him. And the only way into that kingdom is to repent, to turn 180 degrees from your sin and turn to him. That's the only way into his kingdom. He is telling the people that basically my kingdom, I'm going to show you now what it takes to become a, a member of my kingdom, and that's where the Beatitudes come in. So Jesus proclaimed this, his message, with certainty. He did not come to dispute or argue, but to proclaim the truth, to preach the truth. 
We should be like him, and as followers of Christ, when we share the gospel, should never argue or reason or dispute or try to convince by our intellectual proof. We just proclaim the truth and then step aside and let the Holy Spirit take over. So now we see the true king is here, and he's ready to proclaim his kingdom. Matthew also reports that Jesus was going about all of Galilee, teaching and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and disease among the multitudes. The Greek word for multitudes is plethos, where we get our word plethora. It means a great number of all kinds, a full number, meaning a complete number, like there was no more room for anyone else. And all of this multitude was now following Jesus everywhere he went. The great multitudes who followed him no doubt came by many reasons, came for many reasons besides healing for themselves or others. Many came just to hear him teach and preach, and many no doubt came out of mere curiosity. But they came in great numbers and from great distances. They came from Decapolis. They came from beyond the Jordan. They came from Jerusalem and Judea. Many of the great multitude believed in Jesus and were saved, experiencing the kingdom inwardly. The vast majority, however, Jew and Gentile alike, did not believe in him. They listened to what he said, watched what he did, and received temporary blessings. But they did not accept the one who spoke and who healed whose words and work not only give blessings, but eternal life. Today we will be looking at the Beatitudes, but the entire Sermon on the Mount, including the Beatitudes, is a radical message. Especially to the Jews of that day, and particularly the religious teachers. The religious leaders taught that they were blessed with power and wealth because of how righteous they were, and because of that they would have eternal life. They expected the people to obey the rules and laws that they added to the already stringent law of Moses. How shocked these Jews must have been when they heard Jesus speak. It was the exact opposite to what they were used to hearing. In fact, the ideals and principles in this sermon are drastically contrary to all human societies and governments. In the kingdom of Jesus, the most exalted persons are those who are the lowliest in the world's estimation and vice versa. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived until that time. Yet John had no possession and no home, lived in the wilderness, dressed in animal skins, and ate locusts and wild honey. He had no worldly power, and he preached a message that was absurd in the world's eyes. Yet he received the highest praise from our Lord. In Jesus' kingdom, the least are greater even than John the Baptist. They are characterized by all the blessings listed in the Beatitudes. According to the world, these are characteristics of losers. The world says, assert yourself, stand up for yourself, be proud of yourself, elevate yourself, defend yourself, avenge yourself, and serve yourself. Those are the precious traits of the world's people and the world's kingdom. Now let's take a look at Jesus' kingdom. As we look at the Beatitudes, we see Jesus using the word blessed in every one of them. 
We now know that in the Greek, blessed means basically happy. But that doesn't seem to capture all that is intended here in the text, primarily because modern usage of the word happy has devalued that. This term is an exclamation of the inner joy and peace that comes with being right with God. Happiness may indeed be a part of it, but it is a happiness that transcends what happens in the world around us, a happiness that comes to the soul from being favored by God. That is why it can call for rejoicing under intense persecution. In some ways, the Lord's declaration of blessed is a pledge of divine reward for the inner spiritual character of the righteous. In other ways, it is his description of the spiritual attitude and state of people who are right with God. So, with that, let's go to our text, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. should be on the next page. And we'll start with verse 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. In that day, it was common for a rabbi to sit down when he talked. If he spoke while standing, if he spoke while standing or walking, what he said was considered to be informal and unofficial. But when he sat down, what he said was authoritative and official. Even today we speak of professors holding a chair in a university, signifying the honored position from which they teach. When the Roman Catholic Pope gives an official pronouncement, he is said to speak ex cathedra, which literally means to speak from his chair. When Jesus sat down and delivered the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke from his divine chair and with absolute authority as the sovereign king sitting on his throne. And again, we see the multitudes. They were an important audience for the evangelistic sermon. But the standards of spiritual life that Jesus gave here could not apply to them or be followed by them unless they belonged to him. The fact that his disciples came to him indicates they were also his audience In fact, the twelve are the only ones at that time who, to any real extent, could know the blessedness of which the Lord spoke and follow the perfect way of righteousness which he set before them. They were the only ones who had partaken of the inner divine power and presence that are absolutely necessary for obeying God's perfect will. So the sermon not only showed the multitude the standard of God's righteousness that they could not keep, but it also showed the disciples the possible standard they could now keep because of his coming and their faith in him. No one could ever keep the standards that are set forth here in the Beatitudes unless they have faith in Jesus Christ. Then in verse 2, Then he opened his mouth and taught them. Up until this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' words were limited. If you have a red-letter Bible, you see that there is very little red leading up to this point, but when you get to chapter 5, there is an explosion of red pretty much through the rest of the gospel of Matthew. So when Jesus opens his mouth, he has a lot to say. 
Matthew's speaking of Jesus opening his mouth as he began to teach them was not a meaningless statement of the obvious, but it was a common phrase used to introduce a message that was especially solemn and important. It was also used to indicate intimate, heartfelt testimony of sharing. Jesus' sermon was both authoritative and intimate, and it was of the utmost importance and was delivered with the utmost concern. And so that brings us to the first beatitude in verse 3. Finally, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People who are poor in spirit are those who are humble before God. The Greek word for poor is patokos and is from a verb meaning to shrink, cower, or cringe as beggars often did in that day. Classical Greek used the word to prefer to refer to a person reduced to total destitution who crouched in a corner begging. As he held out one hand for alms, he often hid his face with the other hand because he was ashamed of being recognized. The term did not mean simply poor, but begging poor. This does not mean that rich people cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and it does not mean that all poor people will inherit the kingdom of God. The word commonly used for the ordinary poverty was penikros, and is used of the widow that Jesus saw giving an offering in the temple. She had very little, but she did have two small copper coins. She was poor, but not a beggar. One who is Penicros poor has at least some meager resources. One who is Patokos poor, however, is completely dependent on others for sustenance. He has absolutely no means of self-support. To be poor in spirit is to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God. It is to see oneself as one really is, lost, hopeless, and helpless. Apart from Jesus Christ, every person is spiritually destitute no matter what his education, wealth, social status, accomplishments, or religious knowledge. That is the point of the first beatitude. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their total spiritual destitution and their complete dependence on God. The phrase in spirit also conveys the sense that the recognition of poverty is genuine, not an act. It does not refer to outwardly acting like a spiritual beggar, but to recognizing what one really is. It is true it is true humility, not mock humility. It describes the person about whom the Lord speaks in Isaiah 66, verse 2. To this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Jesus puts this beatitude first because humility is the foundation of all other graces, a basic element in becoming a Christian Pride has no part in Christ's kingdom. And until a person surrenders his pride, he cannot enter the kingdom. Being poor in spirit is the first beatitude because humility must precede everything else. No one can receive the kingdom until he recognizes that he is unworthy of the kingdom. We cannot be filled until we are empty. We cannot be made worthy until we recognize our unworthiness 
We cannot live until we admit we are dead. We cannot begin the Christian life without humility, and we cannot live the Christian life with pride. How do we become poor in spirit? It doesn't start with us or with anything we can do or accomplish in our own power, nor does it involve putting ourselves down. We are already down. Humility simply recognizes the truth. Humility is not a human work, what is necessary to make us worthy, but a divine work that is necessary to make us see that we are unworthy and cannot change our condition without God. The first step in experiencing humility is to turn our eyes off ourselves and look to God. When we study His Word and seek His face in prayer and sincerely desire to be near Him and please Him, we move toward being poor in spirit. Those who come to the King in this humility inherit His kingdom, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God has gladly chosen to give the kingdom to those who humbly come to Him. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, he cried in despair, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Then an angel touched the prophet's mouth with a burning coal and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is, be- is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Those who come to the Lord with broken hearts do not leave with broken hearts. God wants us to recognize our poverty so that he can make us rich. He wants us to recognize our lowliness so that he can raise us up. James says in his epistle, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. In giving up their own kingdom, the poor in spirit inherit God's kingdom. And now we come to the second beatitude in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is becoming quite evident that the Beatitudes are paradoxical because what they promise or what they demand seems upside down in the eyes of the natural man. The paradox of the second Beatitude is obvious. What could be more self-contradictory than the idea that the sad are happy, that the path to happiness is sadness, and that the way to rejoicing is in mourning? This beatitude literally means happy are the sad. This idea seems absurd to the world. To the natural man, the things that bring happiness are money, entertainment, fame, and praise, and a host of other self-centered indulgences. There are actually three types of mourning. The first being improper mourning. Improper mourning is the sorrow of those who are frustrated in fulfilling evil plans and lust or who have misguided loyalties and affection. To those who mourn in that way, the Lord offers no hope or solace. The second is proper mourning, which is legitimate sorrows that are common to all mankind and for which reasonable mourning is appropriate. The mourning about which Jesus is talking in the second beatitude, however, has nothing to do with the types just discussed, discussed, proper or improper. The Lord is concerned about all of of the legitimate sorrows of his children, and he promises to console, comfort, and strengthen us when we turn to him for help. 
But those are not the kind of sorrows at issue here. Jesus is speaking of godly sorrow, godly mourning, mourning that only those who sincerely desire to belong to him can experience. We saw in the first beatitude that entrance into the kingdom of heaven begins with being poor in spirit, with recognition of total spiritual bankruptcy. Spiritual poverty leads to godly sorrow. The poor spirit become those who mourn. There are nine different Greek words that are used in the New Testament to speak of sorrow. Of the nine terms used for sorrow, the one used here is pentheo. It is the strongest and the most severe. It represents the deepest, most heartfelt grief and was generally reserved for grieving over the death of a loved one. Godly sorrow comes when we see our true nature in the light of the Word of God and see how short we fall in relation to His divine nature. Do you see how far you are from living the life described in the Bible? Do you grieve that you are a prisoner of the sin that dwells within you? If you can answer yes to these, you will be comforted because your godly sorrow will produce repentance, which leads to action, then to obedience, and ultimately to salvation. That is why it is written in Ecclesiastic chapter 7, verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter, for a sad countenance the heart is made better. Your mourning will be replaced with the oil of joy and gladness. Now we move on to verse 5 and the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In some versions, the word gentle is used in place of meek. Either one will do. Like the first two beatitudes, this one must have been shocking and perplexing to Jesus' hearers. He taught principles that were totally foreign to their thinking. Jesus' audience knew how to act spiritually proud and spiritually self-sufficient. They were proficient in erecting a pious facade. They actually believed that the Messiah was coming soon and would commend them for their goodness. All Jews hoped for deliverance in some sort by some means. Many were expecting deliverance to come through the Messiah in some way. Consequently, in whatever way various groups of people expected the Messiah to come, they did not anticipate him coming humbly and meekly. Yet those were the very attitudes that Jesus was both teaching and practicing. The idea of a meek Messiah leading meek people was far from any of their concepts of the Messianic kingdom. The people as a whole eventually rejected Jesus because he did not fulfill their expectations. The word gentle is from the Greek word preos, which basically means mild or soft. The term sometimes was used to describe a soothing medicine or a soft breeze. It was used of colts and other animals whose naturally wild spirits were broken by a trainer so that they could do useful work. As a human attitude, it meant being gentle of spirit, meek, submissive, quiet, and tender-hearted. We again can see logical sequence and progression in the Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit results in mourning over our sin, which leads us to meekness and taking our rightful place as submissive before the Lord. Meekness does not mean weakness. Meekness means power under control, 
Emotion out of control destroys and has no place in God's kingdom. Meekness is the opposite of violence and vengeance. The meek person has died to self, and he therefore does not worry about injury to himself or about loss, insult, or abuse. The meek person does not defend himself, first of all, because that is the Lord's command and example, and second, because he knows that he does not deserve defending. Being poor in spirit and having mourned over his great sinfulness, the gentle person stands humbly before God, knowing he has nothing to commend himself. Meekness is not cowardness. It is not lack of conviction nor mere human niceness, but its courage, its strength, its conviction, and its pleasantness come from God, not from self. The spirit of meekness is the spirit of Christ. As with other Beatitudes, the general result of meekness is being blessed, being divinely happy. God gives the meek his own joy and gladness. More specifically, however, the meek shall inherit the earth. After creating man in his own image, God gave man the dominion over the whole earth. The subjects of his kingdom are going to come someday into that promised inheritance, which was lost and perverted after the fall. Theirs will be paradise regained. One day, God will completely reclaim his earthly domain, and those who have become his children through faith in his Son will rule that domain with him. The only ones who become his children are those who are gentle, those who are meek, because they understand their unworthiness and sinfulness and cast themselves on the mercy of God. This beatitude is almost a direct quotation of Psalm 37, verse 10 and 11, which says, Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and he will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there, but the humble will inherit the land. The wicked person's time of judgment is coming, as is the righteous person's time of blessing. Our responsibility is to trust the Lord and obey his will. The settling of accounts, whether in judgment or blessing, is in his hands and will be accomplished exactly in the right time and in the right way. In the meantime, God's children live in faith and hope based on the certain promise, the divine pronouncement, that they shall inherit the earth. And that brings us to verse 6 and the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. This beatitude speaks of strong desire, a driving pursuit, and of a passionate force inside the soul. It has to do with ambition, ambition of the right kind. The goal of that ambition is to honor, obey, and glorify God by partaking of His righteousness. This is a holy ambition and is in stark contrast to the common ambitions of natural men to gratify their own lusts, accomplish their own goals, and satisfy their own egos. Jesus declares that the deepest desire of every person ought to be to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is a desire that is prompted by the Holy Spirit that will lead a person to salvation and then keep him strong and faithful once he is in the kingdom. It is also the only ambition that, when fulfilled, brings everlasting happiness. 
Hunger and thirst represent the necessities of physical life. The analogy Jesus puts forth here demonstrates that righteousness is required for spiritual life just as food and water are required for physical life. Righteousness is not an optional spiritual supplement, but a spiritual necessity. We can no more live spiritually without righteousness than we can live physically without food and water. The heart of every person in the world was created with a sense of inner emptiness and need. Yet apart from God's revelation and man's rebirth, no one will recognize what the need is or know what will satisfy it. Though God has created men with a need for himself, they try to satisfy that need through lifeless gods of their own making. So what is the object or the goal of spiritual hunger? The goal of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is twofold. For the unbeliever, the goal is salvation. For the believer, it is sanctification. For the unbeliever, when a person initially hungers and thirsts for righteousness, he seeks salvation. That is the righteousness of Jesus. We are wrapped in at, in at the moment of our conversion that comes when we turn from our sin and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In staying with the overall theme of the Beatitudes, in poverty of spirit we see our sin. In mourning we lament and turn from our sin. In meekness we submit our sinful way and our power to God. And in hunger and thirst we seek God's righteousness in Christ to replace our sin. For believers, those who have been spiritually reborn, the object of hungering and thirsting is to grow in the righteousness received in trusting Jesus. That growth is called sanctification, which more than anything else is the true mark of a Christian. No believer is completely sanctified or can claim perfection until he reaches heaven. Children of the kingdom never stop needing or hungering for God's righteousness and holiness, which is evident in them through their obedience. The result of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is being fulfilled or satisfied. The Greek word for satisfy is kortazo and was frequently used to describe the feeding of animals until they wanted nothing more. They were allowed to eat until they were completely satisfied. The divine pronouncement of our Lord is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be given total satisfaction. The giving of satisfaction is God's work. As the future tense indicates, they shall be satisfied. Our part is to seek, his part is to satisfy. Now, let's move on to verse 7 and the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The first four Beatitudes deal entirely with inner principles, principles of the heart. They are, they are concerned with the way we see ourselves before God. The last four are outward manifestations of those attitudes. For example, those who are poor in spirit recognize their need for mercy and are led to show mercy to others. The days that Jesus walked the earth for the most part were not characterized by mercy. 
The Jewish leaders were not inclined to show mercy because mercy is not a characteristic of those who are proud, self-righteous, or judgmental. To them and a lot of others listening to Jesus, it wasn't even considered a virtue. In ancient Rome, it was considered a supreme sign of weakness. Mercy was a sign that you didn't have what it takes to be a real man and especially a real Roman. During much of Roman history, a father had the right to decide whether or not his newborn child would live or die. The father would turn his thumb up if he wanted it to live or down if he wanted it to die. If his thumb turned down, the child was immediately drowned. Today, abortion reflects the same merciless attitude. A society that despises mercy is a society that glorifies brutality. This attitude reflects the basic, selfish nature of fallen man. Men are not naturally inclined to repay mercy for mercy. But on the other side of that coin is the Lord himself. Jesus Christ was the most merciful human being who ever lived. He healed the sick. He restored the crippled, gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, and even gave life to the dead. He forgave prostitutes and tax collectors. After all that, he never expected or required any mercy in return. In fact, he got the opposite. The ultimate outcome of his mercy was the cross. We as his followers are to give mercy, mercy freely to others, not expecting anything in return. This beatitude does not teach that mercy to men brings mercy from men. If we are merciful to others, God will be merciful to us, whether men are or not. As the Beatitude says, those who are merciful shall receive mercy from God. The word used here for merciful is eleimon, which means beneficial or charitable. Jesus is not talking about a powerless sentiment that is unable to help those that need our sympathy. It is genuine compassion expressed in genuine help, selfless concern expressed in selfless deeds. Mercy is meeting people's needs. It is not simply feeling compassion, but showing compassion. Mercy is giving food to the hungry, comfort to the bereaved, love to the unlovable, forgiveness to the offender, and compassion to the lonely. When we are merciful, we receive mercy. God is merciful to us by saving us through Jesus, and in obedience, we are merciful to others. If we have received from a holy God unlimited mercy that cancels our unpayable debt of sin, we who had no righteousness but were poor in spirit, mourning over our sin in a begging, helpless condition, wretched and doomed, meek before Almighty God, and hungry and thirsty for a righteousness we could not get on our own, then it surely follows that we should be merciful to others. And that brings us to the sixth beatitude in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, the word blessed means happy, fortunate, or blissful, which implies a condition of well-being that results from salvation, the status of one who has a right relationship with God. The Greek word for heart is cardia, 
from which we get cardiac. All through scripture, as well as languages and cultures throughout the world, the heart has been used to represent the the inner person, where our motives and attitudes originate, the center of personality. But in scripture, it represents much more than emotion and feelings. It also includes the thinking process, and particularly the will. Proverbs 23, verse 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Jesus asked a group of scribes, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? As we see here, the heart that Scripture is talking about is not a pulsating organ in your chest pumping blood to all your extremities. It is, however, the mind where all our thoughts and ideas and perceptions originate from. Scripture also tells us to guard our hearts. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says in the NIV version, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We have to be careful of what we let into our hearts. If we are not discerning and mindful of what we perceive to be real or true, and we let false perceptions into our hearts, believing them to be true, whether they are whether they be false doctrine, false teaching or preaching, false motives, or even false rumors and gossip, those perceptions will control our emotions and in turn, our emotions will control our actions and cause us to behave in a sinful manner. Genesis 6, verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's why Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart. The Greek word for pure is katharos, which basically means to make pure by cleansing from dirt, filth, and contamination. The term was often used for metals that had been refined until the impurities were removed, leaving only the pure metal. Applied to the heart, the idea is that of pure motive, undivided devotion, spiritual integrity, single-mindedness, and true righteousness. Even as Christians, we don't always have these conditions of the heart. Even though it is and should be our deepest desire to be that way, for example, we often fail to be single-minded. Double-mindedness has always been a stumbling block for the church. We want to serve the Lord, but we want to follow the world at the same time. Jesus said, That's impossible. He says in Matthew 6, verse 24, that no one can serve two masters. Christians have the right heart motive concerning God. Those who truly belong to God will be motivated to purity of heart. The deepest desire of true believers is for holiness, even when sin puts a stop to the fulfillment of that desire. So even though we are pure in heart, We don't always act or look that way. Even with a pure heart, we are still going to sin, but we desire not to. It is actually impurity of heart that separates man from God, and just as impurity separates man from God, only purity of heart through Jesus Christ will reconcile men to God. And what is the result of purity of heart? For they shall see God. The Greek translation of that is, they shall be continuously seeing God for themselves. 
when our hearts are purified at our salvation, we begin to live in the presence of God and see and comprehend Him with our new spiritual eyes. Purity of heart cleanses the eyes of the soul so that God becomes visible. Intimate knowledge of and fellowship with God is reserved for the pure in heart. That's why Jesus says, it is only they, the pure in heart, who shall see God. Next up is the seventh beatitude of verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God is the God of peace, and he emphasized that reality by making peace one of the dominant ideas of his word. The Bible opens with peace in the garden and closes with peace in eternity. Someday, Jesus will come as Prince of Peace and set up his worldwide kingdom of peace and then ultimately the eternal age of peace. But the Bible also reveals, as does human history, that peace is not a big part of man's earthly existence. In fact, there has never been and there is no peace now for two reasons. Satan's opposition to God and man's disobedience to God. Satan and man are engaged <clears throat> with the God of peace in a battle for sovereignty. That is a sobering thought, to realize that when we try to take control and insert our will over God's will, we are actually in partnership with Satan. That partnership then manifests itself in what we are seeing in the world today, a stark lack of peace. <clears throat> the word the world claims to always be striving for world peace, but its w words and actions prove otherwise. The world loves and exalts the powerful. The model man is not meek, but macho. He is not generous, but selfish. Not gentle, but cruel. Not submissive, but aggressive. Not meek, not meek but proud. The philosophy of the world is to put self first. It is the most popular therapeutic advice given these days. But when self is first, peace is last. Putting self first causes strife, division, hatred, resentment, and war. Self is the great friend of sin and the great enemy of righteousness and ultimately peace. Jesus is talking about an inner personal peace that only he can give to the soul of man that only his children can be an example of. This beatitude calls God's children to be peacemakers. He has called us to a special mission to help restore the peace. So what does it look like to be a peacemaker? Well, first we should examine what true peace looks like. The peace that Jesus is speaking of here is not the peace that the world claims to strive for. It has nothing to do with politics or wars. This peace is not the absence of conflict or strife. It is the presence of righteousness. The peace he is referring to comes from God. In James chapter 3, verse 17, James says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. God's way to peace is through purity. Purity and righteousness and peace only come through repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. Before we become believers, we are literally at war with God. James 4.4 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Unbelievers are friends of the world, but when our eyes are opened and we see our depravity and repent of it, and Jesus becomes our Lord and Savior, we are now at peace with God. We become His children. We are at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. True Christianity is the only thing that can break down all barriers that once came between all people. When you are a child of God, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, what gender you are, what age you are, your social status, or your financial status. We are all held together by one common denominator, Jesus. And so we become partakers in the peacemaking process. When we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the whole gospel, the bad news of our sinfulness, and the good news of Jesus taking God's wrath that was due us, we are sharing with others the peace we have with God and with each other. The blessing to us is that we shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking is a hallmark of God's children. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The phrase, shall be called, is a continuous future tense. It's saying that throughout eternity, peacemakers will go by the name children of God. It indicates that all heaven will call peacemakers sons of God because God himself has declared them to be his children. And that brings us to the eighth and final beatitude in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of all the beatitudes, this last one seems the most contrary to human thinking. If the world can't associate happiness with humility or mourning over sin or gentleness, righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, or peacemaking holiness, in other words, all the previous Beatitudes, how much less will it associate happiness with persecution? Who could be happy while being persecuted? Not everyone who suffers persecution is entitled to the blessing of this Beatitude. Jesus is referring to the citizens of the kingdom, those who live out and fulfill the first seven Beatitudes. Only they may experience the blessing of the eighth beatitude. Second Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. To live for Jesus is to live in opposition to Satan and his world and his system. Christ, living in his people today, produces the same reaction from the world that Christ himself produced when he lived on earth as man. Who would have thought that a man could be persecuted and reviled and have all manner of evil said of him for righteousness' sake? And does the world really hate righteousness and love those who are wicked and evil? Not really, but they only love righteousness when it's aimed at them. But when righteousness is practiced in obedience to God's word and done in order to be Christ-like and holy, then the world's hatred rises up. 
The phrase in verse 10, for righteousness sake, calls upon us to honestly examine ourselves before God when we are being opposed. Are we really being persecuted for the right reason? Only persecution for being Christ-like qualifies us for this blessing. Why don't we go to First uh, Peter chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 12 through 16. Twelve through sixteen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of God and of God, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. Persecution of this sort is a sure and tangible sign of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3-4 says that Paul encouraged the Thessalonians by sending Timothy so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. In Romans 8, Paul tells us suffering persecution is part of the normal Christian life. And if we never experience ridicule or rejection because of our faith, we have reason to examine the genuineness of it. There is a way to avoid persecution, and it's easy and it's obvious. When we live like the world, it will cost us nothing. To mimic the world's standards or to never criticize them will cost us nothing. To keep quiet about the gospel, especially the truth that apart from its saving power, men remain in their sins and are destined for hell, will cost us nothing. To go along with the world, to laugh at its jokes, to enjoy its entertainment, to smile when it mocks God and takes his name in vain, and to be ashamed to take a stand for Jesus, will not bring persecution. In Luke 6, verse 26, Jesus says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Jesus does not take faithlessness faithlessness lightly. So if we are true believers, we will be persecuted at some point in some way. Persecute and persecuted are from the Greek word dioko, which has the basic meaning of chasing, driving away, or pursuing. These things could mean physical persecution or verbal insults. We here in America have not, for the most part, had to endure physical abuse, but we must be ready for it could happen at any time. But what is common is verbal persecution. 
And so we see verse 11 in our text says, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Some versions say, on account of me. Jesus is not speaking of every hardship, problem, or conflict believers face, but those that the world brings on because of our faithfulness to the Lord. The central theme of the Beatitudes is righteousness. The first two have to do with recognizing our own righteousness, and the next five have to do with seeking and reflecting righteousness. The last Beatitude has to do with our suffering for the sake of righteousness. So it is clear that the hallmark of the blessed person is righteousness. Holy living is what provokes persecution of God's children. This persecution, because of a righteous life, brings gladness and joy. So we read in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said we are the salt and light of the earth. But when our salt and light are resented, rejected, and thrown back in our face, we should rejoice and be glad. Be glad is from agelio, which means to exalt or to be overjoyed. The literal meaning is to skip and jump with happy excitement. This is much more than a suggestion from Jesus. We are commanded to be glad. Not to be glad when we suffer for Christ's sake is to be untrusting and disobedient. Jesus gives two reasons for our rejoicing and being glad when we are persecuted for his sake. First, he says, your reward will be great in heaven. James 4.14 says, our present life is no more than a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. But heaven is forever. Whatever we do for the Lord now, including suffering for him, in fact, especially suffering for him, reaps eternal dividends. Second, we are to rejoice because the world persecuted the prophets who were before us in the same way it persecuted us. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we are in the best possible company. To be afflicted for righteousness' sake is to stand in the ranks of the prophets. In Hebrews 11, the writer, while describing the mistreatment and persecution of the Old Testament prophets, calls them men of whom this world is not worthy. Though the world is not worthy of their company, every persecuted believer is. To be persecuted verifies that we belong to the line of the righteous. So now we can draw courage and comfort from these precious words of Jesus to give us strength we need to live this life that he has presented to us here. The Beatitudes are a blueprint of the believer's journey through life. Sadly, many preachers and teachers are trying to pass off worldly philosophy in the name of Christianity. They claim that faithfulness to Christ guarantees health, wealth, success, prestige, and prosperity. But Jesus taught no such thing. As we see, uh, as we see here in these Beatitudes, he taught the opposite. He warned us that physical, worldly pleasures limit true happiness. The things of the world become fuel for pride, lust, and self-satisfaction. 
So the question is, who are we going to follow, the world or Jesus? May God give us the wisdom to choose wisely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all your blessings, not just the blessings we learned about today, but even the everyday blessings of a roof over our heads and food on the table and even the breath in our lungs and the beating of our hearts. We ask that you would continue to bless us in your grace and mercy and continue to strengthen us so we can courageously live out the life described in these Beatitudes. Lord, we ask for strength to endure persecution when it comes our way. Help us, Lord, to accept it with gladness and joy. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.